these things. He was driven to tears that the Apostle Paul was once again in prison. And Paul acknowledges that. He said, I'm mindful of your tears. I'm mindful of your concern for me. But he says that I also may be filled with joy. Uh, Paul, of course, later writes to Timothy and he says, Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me, for Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. He, later he says, Do thy diligence to come before winter. Uh, Paul, at, at, at many of these times, was looking forward to when he was going to die for the cause of Christ. Now, Paul had a, a tender heart about him. He had a heart that desired companionship from other believers, and that's how he looked at Timothy. He reminds Timothy about his upbringing. We dealt last week with the importance of teaching our children the Scriptures, and this is one of the verses that we referenced. Paul says, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith. Now that means faith that is without hypocrisy. He says that faith is in you. And he says, it first dwelt in your grandmother, Lois, and then in your mother, Eunice. And he says, I'm persuaded that that same non-hypocritical faith that was in them is also in you. Uh, we do need to understand that uh, the grace of God isn't just there because it was in our family and it was in, because it was in his mother and his grandmother, but he certainly, uh, it was an influence to him. That he was raised in a family that certainly understood and understood the things of God. So Paul says, wherefore, verse 6, I put thee in remembrance of these things. Now he gives him a very interesting directive. He says that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. Again, Paul says, I put thee in remembrance and he's reminding Timothy that you are in my prayers. I am remembering you. I am remembering your faith. And he says, now I want to put you into remembrance of a few things. That you stir up the gift of God. Uh, no matter how long we've been saved, no matter how long we've been followers of Christ, every once in a while we need to have the gift stirred up again we need to be reminded again of what it was when we first saw the light of the gospel when when the the veil was removed from our eyes and we realized that eternal life was now a present possession and that through the gospel we have now been granted this immortality to live that's what verse 10 shows us that the immortality came to light through the gospel Paul is reminding uh, Timothy to stir up that gift, stir up the reminder of what has happened to you. Uh, don't let it go without reminding yourself of those things. Stir up the gift. When we think about something that is stirred up, and often the greatest human illustration of this, I think, probably comes, uh, probably appropriate here in the next couple of days. Uh, if you have a fire going, in order to keep that fire going, you have to stir it up a little bit and, 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 and move the, whatever material bur you're burning. If it's logs, the wood, whatever, you poke it and it moves it, it, it stirs it, it makes it, it makes it reignite. And that's the concept here. He said, you, you need to remind yourself stir up again this gift of God. I think everybody here tonight would agree that we know that God's gift is, God, that God's grace is a gift. It's a gift that's been granted to us. And he says, I want you to stir up that gift. 
Now it begins to remind him again in verse 7. Remember, he's putting Timothy in remembrance. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Paul says this boldly. He says it without hesitation. He says, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but he's given us power. He's given us power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, this is important why he's saying this, because he's going to tell Timothy that this is the very thing that you need to be reminded of, because there are going to be afflictions that are coming. And he says in verse 8, appropriately, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. There are many today who are becoming ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. It was true in Paul's day, and it's true in our day. The gospel in which Paul received by the direct revelation from God the very gospel in which Paul would later lay down his life, now is being replaced by modern philosophy. Philosophy is infiltrating the churches, and people are truly ashamed of the gospel. They're afraid the gospel is too harsh for today's society, that it's it's, uh, uh, rigorous, that uh, the gospel is just unkind because it, it calls people sinners, it tells them of their depravity. It tells them of their corrupt uh, natures. But do you realize it was this gospel, this gift of God's grace that Paul laid down his life for? He was not ashamed. He's telling Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. And notice he says one other thing. He says, nor of me his prisoner. In other words, he doesn't want Timothy to be ashamed that he is in chains for the cause of Christ. You ever notice sometimes when people get in some type of trouble, uh, people tend to distance themselves away and they say, I don't want anything to do with that person. He tells Timothy, don't be ashamed of my chains. Don't be ashamed that I am in prison. Even if they mock me, even if they speak badly about me, don't be ashamed of the chains. And you can think back to his words to the church at Philippi when he he says, God has, and I'm paraphrasing, God has allowed these chains to be placed upon me for the furtherance of the gospel. He didn't want Timothy to be ashamed of that. And then he tells him, be thou a partaker of the affliction of the gospel. Now notice this, according to the power of God. He tells him, don't be ashamed of me as a prisoner. Don't be ashamed of my chains, but be a partaker of the afflictions. But he doesn't tell him to do it in his own strength. He says, according to the power of God, in order to be able to endure the afflictions that are going to come as a result of the stand for the gospel, you're going to need the power of God to do it. To be a partaker, it means to take your full place in whatever that means. Whatever the affliction brings to you, receive it. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Don't be ashamed of me. Take whatever affliction the gospel brings upon you. But he says, do that according to the power 
of God. And again, along the lines of stirring him up, he says about God who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling. He reminds him of his salvation. He reminds him of his calling. He reminds him that, Timothy, you are part of God's great plan of redemption. Now, we know tonight that we are saved by the death of Jesus Christ. But it's accurate to say that we are called by his grace. The work of salvation was certainly accomplished on the cross, but we are now to know and to partake of that salvation. And by the power and the calling of the Spirit, we are to endure that which comes as a result of it. He says that we're not, to, we're not saved and called according to our works. Paul immediately here reminds us that our salvation and Timothy's salvation, don't be ashamed of it because we remember this, that you have received this as a gift of God. Stir this up and be reminded of this gift that you have. Not according to our works, he says, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. And what a, what a beautiful doctrine this is. I was talking to someone not so long ago who said the first time they started hearing about God's grace and they started hearing about how God saved them, they could not endure what they were hearing. It, was, it sounded almost, it was too much for them to take. And, and I have to be honest, I was sitting there listening and I'm saying, well, why is this so difficult to receive such a glorious doctrine? Because to the unconverted heart, until the power, the effectual calling of God comes and saves that person's soul, it is, it is a repulsive thought. Paul says, don't be ashamed of this grace. He says specifically how this grace, how, not only how this grace was given to us in verse 9, but when. Notice this. He says, we are saved not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. We were given God's grace in Christ Jesus before the world began. Think about that just for a moment. Paul, no doubt here, is talking about the eternal election of believers in eternity past. That Timothy, by Paul's words, is being reminded that you are in Christ, you are in the possession of grace in Christ, and this grace was given us to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. It would not even be accurate to say that God loved us as of yesterday. No, it would be accurate to say that he loved us before the world was even created. Now that's a, that's a deep well. Before the world began, we were saved in Christ Jesus. And here's the other beauty. When the world ceases to be, we will still be saved by the grace in Jesus Christ. This salvation is not just temporary. This salvation is for all of eternity. Paul goes on in this deep doctrine. He says these things happen, verse 9, why they happened according to the purpose of God, 
It was given to us before the foundation of the world, but is now made manifest. These things all happened, but they became apparent, they became visible by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now this coming Lord's Day, Christmas Day, we'll, we'll deal with the incarnation of Christ on a couple of different levels. But that's what Paul's referring to here. It was by the appearing of our Savior. Jesus Christ came to this earth and he took on the nature of humanity. Fully God, fully man. But notice he says that he was made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death. What a glorious truth that is. The greatest fear of mankind is death. And he said by the appearing of Christ, he abolished or he put away what Paul later refers to as the sting of death. Where is that? Where is the sting for the believer? There is no sting for the believer because Christ has abolished death. But notice, and at the same time, he has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. All these things, Paul, as this apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, he reminds Timothy, and we see as a reminder ourselves of who and what we are in Christ Jesus. What has been brought to light for us. What a beautiful passage this is. And then Paul summarizes it. He says, where in 2 verse 11, I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. He says, I am under the appointment and the authority of God. Now, I don't think Paul wrote those words lightly. I think Paul took great humility in thinking that he had been appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles by the will of God. He considered that an honorable calling. And then Paul, verse 12, says, For the which cause, the things he has just said, I also suffer these things. You know, sometimes we exaggerate and we use the word suffer. And we use it in terms that really it's not a suffering. It's just a very large inconvenience. Sometimes we interchange those two words and we say, I'm suffering because of this. Many times we're just being maybe severely inconvenienced. But when Paul uses the word suffer, he's using that which is truly suffering. He's talking about suffering for the cause of Christ. He's been imprisoned, he's been stoned, he's been left for dead, he's been shipwrecked, he's been scourged. He's writing from the, the perspective of, I know what real suffering is. And he says, the reason that I suffer these things is for the cause, Timothy, that I just reminded you of. That the gospel of Jesus Christ, this gift of God, is worth suffering for. One commentator put it this way. He said, I expect that even as Paul was penning this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul's eyes must have glanced around the walls of his prison. Maybe he even lifted up the chains on his wrist and rattled them just to remind himself what he was writing and where he was writing from. 
he went on to further say again, he's, he's, we're not intending to add to the scripture. He's, he's supposing what might have happened. And he said, maybe Paul even lifted up those chains to the soldiers who were guarding him and gave some indication, I'm not ashamed of these chains. I suffer. This cause is worth suffering for. But then he uses the word nevertheless. I am not ashamed. I know I'm suffering. I know I'm imprisoned. But notice how confidently Paul speaks these words. I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. I'm not ashamed because I know who my faith is in. I know whom I believe. Not a what, but whom. My faith, my hope is in Jesus Christ. He who saved me before the foundation of the world, that is whom my belief is in. Now he uses a very strong word here. Again, we see this word in English and we, we see it and we acknowledge it. He says, and am persuaded. Now this isn't just kind of tipped over the edge. Like I'm, 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 I'm kind of on the edge. I, I, I'm, I'm just I got a little bit more convinced than not. This is almost uh, the the original intent is it's an overwhelming flood of persuasion that I'm that convinced. Now, what is he convinced of? That he is able. Who is the he? Christ is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Now, there's a couple of things I think Paul's talking about here about what's been committed. Now, certainly, Paul could know that his soul could be committed to God. He knows that grace is going to keep his soul. But I also think Paul, because the context has also been the importance of the gospel, I think Paul also is keeping in mind here that he would keep this gospel himself. Which living proof is, is that later Paul would die for the gospel. He did not, he didn't surrender the gospel. He didn't, he didn't forsake the gospel. He died for that cause. He would keep the gospel no matter what it brought into his life. But notice Paul didn't say, I am able to keep that which I have committed. He is able. God is able to keep Paul goes on and says, hold fast the form of sound words, which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul says, hold fast to the truth. Hold firm to the very form, the very shape of it. In other words, do not allow it to be contorted. Do not allow it to be twisted. Do not allow it to be corrupted. Hold fast the form of sound words. It's become very popular today for many to say, you know, I don't really have a standard. I don't really have a creed. I don't really have a confession. There really is because there's no desire to hold fast to sound words. Folks, one of the very reasons we are a confessionally reformed church is because of that, is because we believe the importance of holding fast to sound doctrine. 
And that's how important it is that it's, we're not allowed it to be twisted. We're not allowed it to be corrupted. And we certainly, not just the gospel, but the entire counsel of God, we need to hold fast. Don't allow it to be twisted. Don't allow it to be conformed to the, the philosophy of this world. And that's what Paul had in mind here. But notice again, Paul uses himself as an example. He says, hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. Folks, this is what we want. The Holy Ghost dwelling within us will protect us and keep us from ever desiring to trifle or to twist or to corrupt the truth. A person who is indwelt with the Spirit truly, who is a converted soul, is not going to find ways to corrupt, to bend out of shape, to distort sound doctrine. They're going to be even more certain that they're holding fast to sound words. That's the idea that Paul has by using these terms. Paul is reminding that the Holy Spirit not only is what gives us the power to keep that, but it is the Holy Spirit that actually reveals truth to us. If you are agreeing with anything I'm saying tonight from the Word, it is only because the Holy Spirit is confirming that which I'm saying to be true. The Spirit is what gives you understanding. The Spirit is what gives us discernment. It's not our intellect. It's not our, it's not our education that's allowing us to believe this truth. It's the Spirit. That's what Paul is bringing all of this back to God. We are not going to try to, try to press the doctrines of the Word of God and try to find ways and find holes in them and find escape hatches to find ways to say, uh, how, how can I twist this doctrine to my own satisfaction? Paul says it's the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. That's what's going to keep this. And then Paul does something very interesting. And oftentimes there's a controversy in our world today. Say, should we ever call out false teachers, or should we ever call out those who turn away from the faith? Well, the Apostle Paul immediately names names. In verse 14, again, he says, that good thing which was committed unto me and to thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us, this thou knowest, that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me of whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. He mentions two specific names. Now these are people who turned away. I believe, and if you study this out, you will find that they most likely turned away when Paul was put in prison. In other words, they said, that's as far as I'm willing to go. I'm not willing to be a partaker of this type of affliction. I'm not willing to be in chains, and I'm certainly not willing to come to the aid or come to the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Folks, one thing I don't think we fully understand, we know how bad persecution is towards Christians in the world. But if you would have been alive during Paul's day, you would have heard the name Nero, and it would have instilled fear in you. Because it was very real that if word got around to Nero <clears throat> that you were a Christian, you had a mark on you. You were marked 
And we've read the, the horrific stories throughout the historical books talking about Nero using Christians as human torches. So when he talks about don't be afraid, there was a very real fear that could have overtaken him. Now, Paul says, there are these two who forsook me. They were, in fact, the very opposite of what Paul was telling him to be. They were ashamed to own Paul as a brother. Listen, if we are in the faith ourselves, if we are part of the family of God, we are not going to be ashamed of those who are in chains for the gospel. That's exactly what Paul's intent here. Paul mentions these individuals who were ashamed of the gospel, who did turn away from him. Now again, I don't think Paul was saying this in a way that he's just like good riddance. I think every person that ever turned away from the apostle Paul, I think he was grieved deeply by that. I don't think he just said, hey, that's no problem. I think he was grieved but he uses their case and he compares it to another individual. And in verse 16, he specifically mentions giving mercy to a person by the name of Onesiphorus. He specifically says, The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. See the difference. These two individuals mentioned in a previous verse were ashamed. They turned away. He's reminding Timothy, don't be ashamed of this gift of God. And now he mentions this man, Onesiphorus. Notice what he did. He oft or often refreshed me, was not ashamed of my chain, but when he was in Rome, watch this, he sought me out very diligently and found me. Now, if you just read through your Bible and you don't stop and think and ponder enough, you'll miss the beauty of what he's saying here. He talks about, remember, under the fear of self-persecution, the fear of possible death, Onesiphorus went out into Rome. Okay, everybody got the picture? He goes into Rome Nobody knew where Paul's prison cell was. He says about Onesiphorus, he diligently sought me until he found me. And when he found me, he ministered to me. It wasn't like it is in our modern, and I don't mean to be irreverent, but it, it's not like in our modern jail when you go down to the prison and you say, I'm here to see so-and-so. Can we arrange for a visit? That's not the way it worked. They didn't know where he was. He was in Rome. And this man, Onesiphorus, goes from place to place. He doesn't know exactly where Paul is. But once he finds the prison where Paul was being kept, he was not ashamed to be seen with him. He was not ashamed to be seen ministering to him. Now again, under the fear of word getting back to people like Nero, Onesiphorus is risking his life to minister to Paul. Onesiphorus obviously believed that this gift of God, light, life, and immortality, was certainly worth ministering to Paul. He wasn't ashamed. Onesiphorus, you'll notice, look what it says, 
But when he was in Rome, again, he sought me out and found me. He uses two times, he says in verse 16, the Lord give mercy unto his entire house. And then again in verse 18, the Lord grant unto him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day. Now this is a little bit of this is a little bit of a, a a struggle exactly what he means that day is. I did find that a lot of commentators that Paul was somehow making reference to the day when he would suffer affliction and when he would suffer persecution for the decision that he made to minister to Paul and to not be ashamed of the chain. Now, I'm not going to stand here and say dogmatically that's what he means, but that's the way it seems to read. That he would pray here twice that God would give mercy to Onesiphorus and his house because of what Onesiphorus did towards the Apostle Paul. I don't know exactly how everything in glory is going to be, but what an, an amazing honor it must have been for one Cyphorus to be mentioned today as one who was not ashamed of Paul's chains and bravely was willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. Again, one commentator put it this way, one Cyphorus obviously saw there was more value in Paul's chains on Paul's wrists than all the chains that could have been worn by the richest of people in the world. He saw more value in chains of the gospel than chains of gold and silver. Onesiphorus had come to Paul. Again, doesn't tell us specifically what happened on those visits. But we have to suppose to some extent that when he came to Paul, he spoke with him, obviously. Maybe they sang, maybe they prayed together. But he says about him, he often refreshed the Apostle Paul. One Cyphorus is one who would certainly go down as a true servant of the Lord. One who loved to minister to the Apostle even when he was risking his own life to do it. Now again, how do we summarize all of these things? We have Onesiphorus, we have Timothy. He reminds Timothy about stirring up this gift. It all comes back to valuing the gift of God. What has been given to us? What have we, been, what have we received? We have truly received the light of Jesus Christ. And through that light, we are recipients of eternal life. Life that was given to us before the world was even in existence. And we have the promise of immortality. Humanly speaking, there is absolutely no gift on this world and on this planet that's going to last for all of eternity. But this gift of God, this gift of grace will. So many lessons we can learn from this and so many things we can be reminded of. Maybe tonight we just need to be reminded of maybe we've got... We've allowed that gift, we've let that flame maybe begin to burn out. We may just be, tonight need to be reminded of that, to stir up the gift like Paul told Timothy. Stir up the gift that God has given to you. Maybe we're challenged by Onesiphorus and his desire to minister. But I certainly hope tonight that we're reminded that this is the greatest of all gifts. It's the gift of God. The gift 
that has secured not only our eternity, but has accomplished our salvation. And in for that, we are certainly most grateful. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this account in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Lord, I realize tonight in the time that we've spent, Lord, we have certainly not expounded everything that could have been taken from this text. But Lord, I pray that we have been helped. I pray, Father, that as the word has been faithfully expounded, Lord, and that the Holy Spirit gives us understanding and discernment. Lord, that we would leave here refreshed, being yet reminded again of the glorious gospel. Father, may we think often upon the gift of salvation. Lord, may never a day go by that we do not consider what we have in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that you'll bless now the remainder of this evening as we close. And Lord, as we leave, may we meditate on these truths. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.